in today's episode, we arrive at Exodus chapter 14. God has taken his people the long way to the promised land through the wilderness. Pharaoh perceives that they are lost and decides to chase after them. While the Hebrews cry out in fear that they'll meet their end at the hand of Pharaoh's army, Moses assures them, Yahweh will fight for you. You only have to be silent. God uses the Red Sea as a weapon against Pharaoh and as a means of salvation for his people. Good morning. Today is Monday, November 28th, and happy first Monday of Advent. You're listening to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about them at lhfmissions.org. Well, joining us this morning to discuss Exodus 14, please join me in welcoming my guest, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Pastor Eckstein, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Yes, good morning. It's good to be back. Always nice to have you on. It's been a little while since we've talked, but I pray that life and ministry has been good for you in the interim. It has been good, except now winter's officially here. We had a blizzard last week, Thursday, dropped about 10 inches of snow on us, but it's North Dakota after all. So (laughs) yeah, that's what you have to expect. It's snowing here in Minnesota too. And everybody kind of forgets that they live in the Midwest, uh, the Northern Midwest, as soon as it starts to snow for the first time. But yeah, you, you do what you got to do. You keep warm and you keep on trucking. Uh, but I, I like the snow and my, my family loves cold weather. So it works out for us. All right, so today we have a very exciting chapter to go through. In fact, it's probably one of the most well-known biblical accounts, at least from the Old Testament, and that is the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, Before we read that text and get started today, I'm going to ask you, please start our time off together in prayer. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and uh, as we consider this text uh, written by your servant Moses about uh, the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. Help us to see in this event uh, our own salvation. Uh, you have uh, delivered us uh, not just from earthly enemies, but from the ultimate enemy of our own sin and, and the devil who wants to take us from you. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we know from the New Testament that, that the crossing of the Red Sea was like a, an Old Testament baptism that, that points ahead to to uh, our holy baptism, where you put your name on us and 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 delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into your heavenly kingdom, uh, heavenly Father, as we read this today, help us to see ultimately how it's fulfilled in your Son Jesus and all that He's done for us. In your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, as I said, I'm excited to get into this text. You know, the crossing the Red Sea is very well known. But would you like to set the stage for us before we start reading any verses? Uh, just yeah, just a, a brief thing here. Uh, obviously, God, people are are already out of Egypt, and um, uh, the uh, the initial verses that you're going to be reading here momentarily uh, uh, tell us about how uh, Pharaoh changes his mind again <laughs> uh, and decides to uh, pursue God's people. And, of course, that sets the stage for God uh, working this awesome miracle, the parting of the Red Sea. But, but one thing I do want to mention here, because it'll fit in uh, with some of the comments I want to make about when God says he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Uh, one thing we're going to find out is that, that uh, as strange as that language sounds to us, 
we, we need to remember that God does indeed want all people to be saved, and that included Pharaoh. And, and we see this especially if, if, if you look at some of the uh, uh, previous chapters, it talks about a mixed multitude coming out of Egypt, which means there were even some Egyptians who came with and, and put their faith in, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and I, I think the best way to read this is to realize that, that ultimately God wanted Pharaoh and all of Egypt to repent and, and trust in him and, 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 and follow him as their savior as well. Of course, unfortunately, that doesn't happen. But, but we need to uh, be prepared for the fact that even though God is delivering um, uh, his people from their enemies, uh, we, we have to remember that we're all by nature enemies of God. And, and God does ultimately want uh, all to be saved. So when we get into this part where it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, uh, it, it, it is not that God uh, has, has forced Pharaoh to be an unbeliever, but God is simply responding uh, to the fact that, that Pharaoh uh, has rejected him. And, and yet we remember the, the Old Testament teaching where God himself says uh, later in history in Ezekiel that he, he wants no one uh, to perish, but all to come to repentance. So we keep that uh, theological teaching in mind as we, we get into this chapter. Chapter 14, then. We're going to read verses 1 through, let's say, 9. This just will get us started. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahatharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped by the sea at Pehahatharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. There we go, brother. So that is our first nine verses. And yes, we've heard a couple things that you've already brought out. Yahweh hardening Pharaoh's heart again, right? We've seen this theme go over and over again, especially when it came to the uh, different plagues. But we also see Pharaoh being nothing if not consistent. He's he's changing his mind yet again and chasing after them. He's realized, wow, they're a, they're a pretty good human asset that I just let go. Uh, take us through the text, brother. Yes, well, uh, as I said, Israel is, is in the process of, of uh, leaving Egypt, going into the wilderness. And, of course, the, their ultimate goal is, is to get to the promised land. Uh, but now they're supposedly at a, a, a situation where, uh, to use a modern phrase, that between a rock and a hard place, you know, uh, Pharaoh's army are pursuing them. And here they're up against uh, the, the, the Red Sea. And it seems like they're trapped. They're, 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 there's, there's no way out. And yet we have to remember they have the promises of God. God had, had 
assured them that he would protect them. Um, now, it's important to remember that, that sometimes, yes, God does allow us to suffer. Uh, sometimes, yes, he does allow his people to be persecuted. But in this particular case, he had made it very clear to them through Moses that he would redeem them, that he would bring them to the promised land. So ideally at this point, they should have just trusted the Lord and said, hey, even though this looks like a, a no-win situation, we have God's promise. I mean, he proved himself to us again and again through all the plagues on Egypt. Um, certainly, it, he's going to deliver us now. Uh, but as we're going to see in the bit, uh, that, that's not how they respond to the situation. Yeah, this is a, an issue with them throughout the narrative where we hear about the people of God. It's a concern with Moses, even though God gives him his promise. We remember from a, several chapters ago how Moses was trying to get out of the task. He uh, Even his first time appearing from Pharaoh, he gets in front of him and he says, well, I tried once and they didn't listen to me and the people didn't listen to me, but God sends him back again and again. So God has constantly been trying to remind his people that he's in control. He will deliver. And for us too, you know, we can connect ourselves to Moses and also to the people of Israel who, who despite God's amazing works in our lives, often find ourselves not trusting in the Lord for what he promises he will do. Yeah, so I think it's good that you brought that out because we have to all remember that. And I think a good example, a good practical application, because as I mentioned, you know, sometimes God does allow us to, to face hardship in this life. He doesn't always promise to, to deliver us from our enemies. Sometimes he does allow us to suffer. But in this particular case, he gave them a very specific promise. I will deliver you. And I, I think in our own lives, uh, a, a good example of a no-win situation that we all face is when we face death itself. I mean, Boy, uh, if there's one thing we can't control, it's the fact that, that we're all going to die one way or another sooner or later. Uh, death seems to be uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the very obstacle that would deny all of God's promises. And yet, what does he say? We can believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. We, we have that absolute promise from God that when we face death itself, we don't have to despair. We don't have to doubt God's promises, uh, even death itself has been defeated. So, so just like Israel had an absolute promise from God that, hey, uh, Pharaoh w- will not destroy you, uh, we have an absolute promise from God that death will not destroy us. And, and so we, as Christians, we can face death not only, that, not only knowing that we're forgiven, but having that certain promise of the resurrection and eternal life, uh, the promise that we will inherit the eternal promised land. We have that from the Lord. The Lord hardens the heart of Pharaoh, and this is another opportunity for God, for Yahweh, to get glory over Pharaoh, to have this final victory. You know, he's already conquered the gods of Egypt through the plagues. Pharaoh is kind of like the final boss, not that he's any any type of challenge to the one true God. But Pharaoh, you know, he still thinks of himself as this God king, and for everybody involved, it's important that they see, both for the Egyptians and for God's people, that God is ultimately in control. So after what happens next, and we, we all kind of know the story about the Red Sea, then I guess we can assume that the people will, after having witnessed such a miraculous event, will never distrust God's word again. Well, no, of course not. But he hardens the heart of Pharaoh here, and then they overtake them. I guess the people were going a lot slower, the people of Israel, two and a half million people on foot, 
and the the swiftness of the chariots of Egypt were easily able to catch up in the sense that I guess they could see each other. Uh, that must have been a sight for them thinking, well, we'd finally, finally had escaped the terrors of being slaves in Egypt. And then now here comes Pharaoh and his whole army. They just, the people of Israel must have been disheartened. Yes. I, and, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, if I had been there, uh, I, I wouldn't have doubted God. I would have trusted him. But, you know, we, we have to realize, hey, there's times too when our trust in God falters because of our uh, tendency to, to doubt and, and to, to, you know, uh, trust in our circumstances rather than the promises of God. Um, and so we learn from this that, that, that uh, even though we are often unfaithful, God remains faithful. Uh, he is, is always true to his promises in spite of our, our failure to be true to him. And, um, and one last thing before we go on, I just want to come in briefly again on the whole hardening of Pharaoh's heart thing. Um, you know, Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 9 where he talks about, you know, raising up Pharaoh and, and using Pharaoh to glorify himself. But it's important to remember that that is not uh, an example of what we would call double predestination, that though God predestined Pharaoh to be damned. Because later on in Romans 11, God has this wonderful statement. He says, I've bound all men over to disobedience that I might have mercy on them all. And, and so when God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, his only answer to that is, I, I want to have mercy on all. <laughs> And so when we, when we consider that, especially in light of, I uh, think of what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, through you, all nations will be blessed, including the Egyptians. And so uh, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, not because he wants Pharaoh to be damned, but, but basically God, and only God knows this, God knew that Pharaoh had reached the point of no return. He knew that Pharaoh had hardened his heart to the point where he would not submit to God. So now uh, God uses Pharaoh's uh, unbelief, his rebellion, uh, as a way of, of glorifying his own name so that the good news of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob might go out to the nations. And what's interesting is later on in the history of Israel, when they're ready to, to, to go into the promised land and, and they're uh, taking out the city of Jericho, you might remember that Rahab hears of what God did in Egypt and puts her faith in the one true God. So God is now using this event to, to bring his good news of, of him and his saving intentions out into the world. We have a few people out there, too, that really like the history of it. And so before we also move on to the next section of text, it's worth pointing out here that historically the Egyptians would not have had, it says horsemen here in the text, they wouldn't have had like cavalry type horsemen. Look, uh, probably this is just referring to the chariots and the chariots would have been driven by two horses and then it could have been occupied by up to three people. Traditionally, you would just have two people, a pilot and someone who does the fighting. But we see here in the text that that the king of, of Egypt made his own chariot ready. He took 600 chosen chariots with officers over all of them. This is the third man who then also would travel with the chariot to control the other two or to command the other two. So this is a display of not only Pharaoh's great might and his ability to you know, command all these different chariots and occupy them at the fullest capacity, but also himself, who would have been alone in his chariot, uh, strapped in so that he could fight with both hands. Uh, Pharaoh is taking this personally. It's I think it's just striking that 
not only are the people of Israel now having to really trust in God again, even though he's given them every reason to and they keep failing, but Pharaoh is so furious, he's so mad that he takes off after them in his own chariot. Just a, just a fascinating scene that's laying out, and we'll see how God responds as we read verses 10, let's say through verse 20. Here we go. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What you, have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. All right, Pastor. So a long time ago, Pharaoh had said, who is Yahweh? You know, should I know this guy? I don't know a Yahweh. And now through all these plagues, through the releasing of God's people, and now through what's getting ready to happen, Yahweh says, You're, you and all the Egyptians are going to know exactly who I am. Such a magnificent display. Well, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, uh, not only if God uh, had, had he done all these miraculous plagues, uh, uh, he's about part the Red Sea, which will be another sign of, of uh, the God of creation, uh, you know, being in control. But but uh, there's also uh, this pillar of, of cloud and also, uh, as mentioned later on, the pillar of fire that, that are miraculously um, uh, surrounding Israel. Um, uh, and, and it's interesting, uh, in, in, um, uh, verse 19, it talks about the angel of God. Um, now, the, the, uh, there are times in, in the old Testament where the, where the angels are just angels, you know, the, 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 the spirit being the God created to serve us. But then we have this interesting character, the angel of the Lord, who, uh, in, in many contexts, it's, it's clear that the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. And so, um, you know, uh, people debate, you know, uh, uh, whether this was just an angel or the angel of the Lord, uh, that is God himself here. Uh, I lean in the direction that th th this is God himself that is, 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 uh, with Israel in the form of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, that, that's his presence among them, uh, to assure them that, that, uh, he is close to his people. They're defending them. Yeah, we have the angel, which we usually say the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, 
and then Malak Yahweh, and then we have here the angel of God. So what you're saying is there's not really a distinction. You know, God is God. So whether it's the angel of Yahweh, Malak Yahweh, or the angel of uh, God in this case, <clears throat> this is indicating uh, that it's probably God himself. Now, where do we stand on this being the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Godhead, you know, sh making an appearance? And, you know, the, the, the argument that this is uh, the second person of the Trinity it, 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 in the very fact that he is called the angel, uh, 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 which, you know, in Hebrew basically means messenger of the Lord. And, and, and the reason that that could uh, likely be a reference to the second person of the Trinity is that we see, uh, uh, you know, in, in the New Testament, uh, one of the titles that, that the Apostle John gives to the Son of God is that he is the Word. He is the one who speaks to us on behalf of the Father, uh, the messenger so to speak. And so I, I think a very good argument can be made uh, for the fact that, that the Son is the Word um, uh, who, who speaks to us on uh, behalf of the Father. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to, to identify the messenger of the Lord, the messenger of all, Yahweh uh, with the eternal Son of God. Well, it certainly makes sense, even in the context that there's only one God. So, you know, it, while it's uh, interesting to debate it academically, we certainly are grateful that God, you know, acts in history as he's doing here. So the angel of God yeah. who was going before the host of Israel, which we were introduced to in chapter 13 at the end, he moved from leading them and then stood guard, made a wall between them. And now they could rest all night because... You know, God has something up his sleeve tomorrow morning. Just uh, just wonderful text. Well, just uh, again, to emphasize the miraculous element here, um, uh, that, that would definitely be a, been a sign to Pharaoh that, oh, the, the God of creation must be involved here because we, we not only have God being present there in this, this cloud, but it talks about how it, 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 it resulted in darkness for the Egyptians, but light for the people of God. And, and so you hear another example of God, you know, um, miraculously intervening uh, in the events of this world uh, to deliver his people. And, and I can't help but think of how, um, you know, not only uh, did, did the eternal son of God in human flesh perform miracles on this earth uh, to, to verify that he was who he claimed to be. Uh, but we, we also look forward to this grand intervention of God on the final day when he will come again physically into human history. Uh, uh, when he returns at his second coming. So, so all this is sort of a, a foretaste of how God does intervene in history, and we can look forward to him uh, doing that finally uh, uh, on the great second coming of our Lord. But, but all this sort of is a, is a foretaste and a picture of this. Indeed. You know, and we even have that connection, as I'm sure you're going to make later, as they pass through yeah. the Red Sea um, to God's salvific work even today. Well, let's get some more verses out there. We're going to read verses 21 through, let's, let's just say through the end, through 31. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, 
the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians, so the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Well, i tell you what, uh, we are right here at our break. So let's just take a few minutes. We will be back, folks. Do not go anywhere. When we return, we will hear more about how God is going to rescue his people from the Egyptian hosts. We'll be right back. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches? where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors. What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church, free of charge, to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Folks, remember, if you have any questions or comments about any of our shows or today's program, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Okay, that's the rest of our chapter. It ends on a, well, a happy note for the Hebrews, but a very sad note for the Egyptians. Uh, take us into this. There's a lot to cover in this part. Yes, well, first of all, uh, it, you know, again, the miraculous element of this. You know, there, there's always people who try to maybe explain the crossing of the Red Sea in, 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 in naturalistic terms, you know. Uh, but the problem with that is, um, it talks about a wall of water, both on the right and on the left. You know, that's not something, that's not a phenomenon you normally see in nature. <laughs> and uh, so again, there, there's this miraculous thing going on here that, that is the only explanation for it is God intervening in his creation. And then uh, it even talks about how God caused the, the horses to panic and, and uh, the, the chariot wheels were clogging up. Again, God uh, fighting for his people. And, um, uh, uh, another very important thing though, that, that helped us understand how this relates to us is the very crossing of the Red Sea itself. Uh, the apostle Paul talks about this in first Corinthians chapter 10, about how his old Testament people were baptized 
uh, into Moses through the cloud and through the sea. And, and so uh, the crossing of the Red Sea is like a, a type of Old Testament baptism where God is, is, is assuring and claiming his people as their own and uh, as his own and, and, and assuring them that, that they have been adopted by uh, him. In fact, later on, when we get to Exodus 20, uh, God is, is very clear that, hey, I am the God who delivered you from Egypt. And, and, and a primary a sign of that was, was the crossing of the Red Sea. And so we think of our own baptism uh, as God uh, assuring us that, that we have been delivered from the enemies of our own sin, death, and the devil that ha- have now been brought from the kingdom of darkness in, uh, into God's kingdom, uh, rescued from the slavery of sin and, and brought into the freedom of Jesus Christ. And, and, and we look forward to that eternal promised land, which of course is, is pictured uh, by the Old Testament promised land that God is going to eventually give to his people. So there's so much here that points ahead to our redemption in Christ. There really is. And critics of the Bible, as you pointed out, like to try to say, well, all of this that's happening, um, if they acknowledge that it happened, is happening as a result of naturalistic explanations. There are, unfortunately, even those who put their faith, hope, and trust in God seemingly, but want to deny the clear testimony of Scripture by saying that these things are natural and that's that's tough for me to see Christians try to explain away the powerful works of God. But some of the explanations I've heard is that there was a sandbar that the people were able to walk across, and therefore, because they walked across this sandbar, they were able to get it across, but then somehow the Egyptians didn't know about it and drown. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And we see that the yeah, it's a pretty no. Go ahead. I'm not. I'm not saying God can't work through natural things uh, to to help His people, but here it's clearly that there's something miraculous going on. First of all, if it was just a sandbar, how do we deal with the comments about the walls of water? You know, uh, you know, it's obviously that the the, the waters are being stacked up in in a miraculous sort of way that that water doesn't normally do. And uh, on on both the right and the left. And then also, as you pointed out, um, if there was a sandbar for the Israelites, were the Egyptians just such bad drivers that they, uh, you know, (laughs) took their chariots into the water instead of on the sandbar? You know, no, obviously, uh, as as the scripture says, uh, they went across on the same dry land that Israel did because the waters had been parted. And then God miraculously closes the water over the Egyptians. You know, that's the clear reading of the text. So to, to try to explain it away in just a naturalistic uh, sense uh, just uh, doesn't uh, do uh, fairness to the text itself and what it's clearly saying. Well, it certainly doesn't. And those who are critical are the ones who are not interested in being fair to the text. They want to try to undermine the text. In 1963, there was a professor of the Athens Observatory and uh, he determined that uh, there was a volcanic explosion on the Greek island of Santorin in the Aegean Sea, and it caused 5,000-foot-high tidal waves causing the, wall, the walls. So, so he's connecting that to, you know, uh, oh, as the Hebrews reached a strip of land uh, right on the Lake of Canes and causing the water to be sucked away from the coast, permitting them to safely cross the – okay – So here's the problem with that. As you pointed out, yes, God could have used that. He could have used 
uh, natural means to create it, but a couple things. One, why not understand the simple point of the text? So, so Exodus chapter 14 isn't trying to tell us about, well, here's exactly how God does something. It's telling us this is what God has done. And I agree with the term wall. It's from the Hebrew uh, koma, which is just the normal word used for a wall. It doesn't tell us how high it was, you know, sort of a barrier. But even that, there's really no way that that's a natural posture for for water. So whether you have in your mind this this giant, you know, Ten Commandments style water on each side as they're passing through, or whether it was just divided enough so that they could get through, God is obviously at work rescuing them. And yet the Egyptians aren't dumb. They went in thinking, okay, we can do the same thing. God causes them to uh, to perish, and, and he saves his people just as he promised he would. All right, so as we look at all of this then, um, we see then the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the water may come back upon the Egyptians. I think it's also fascinating when we look at what's going on on the ground. God is still using Moses. He's not, he's not just, he could have done this from his heavenly height, but he has Moses stretch out his hand over the sea to drive the sea back. Right. He has Moses put his, uh, his hand back out so that the water may come back over the Egyptians. Clearly, there's a reason for that, right, Pastor? Yes, you know, and this is a good example of where God chooses uh, to work through physical means. And, 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 um, you know, Moses ends up being a, a, a type of Christ, uh, in the old Testament, you know, later on in Deuteronomy, um, uh, uh, there's this prophecy that, uh, of, of a prophet like Moses that's coming. And, and we know in the, in the new Testament, that was a, a, a prophecy of Jesus. And, and here we see that when Jesus works miracles, he, he's doing it as God in human flesh. You know, you're right. God could have done these miracles from you know, his, uh, you know, um, omnipresent saving glory. But instead, you know, you, you have God in human flesh. Uh, Jesus, when he healed people, he actually touched people with his hand, um, bit on a guy in one case, you know, he, 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 he is physically involved with, with his miracles. And so we he, see here God working through uh, this man, Moses, his prophet, uh, to accomplish his, his salvation for his people. So th- this is another example of where God chooses to work through physical means uh, to uh, uh, bring his saving benefits to us. And we see that even in, in how he, he blesses us today. He, he uh, uh, blesses us and gives us his saving gifts in the water. He uses actual water in baptism to convey that to us. Um, he uses the words spoken from a physical man pl- put in the office of the ministry to, to proclaim forgiveness. He, he uses bread and wine to give us the very body and blood of his son. So, so we don't have this God who is distant from his creation, but a God who, who comes down to be close to us and, and bring the, his saving gifts through creation itself. God, as I often say, condescends to us, right? He comes down to our level. He gives us the things we need. And using Moses in this way undoubtedly benefited the people because the very last verse of this particular uh, chapter is the people feared Yahweh and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. So God using means, uh, you know, people, things, 
Um, he he sets that up here with Moses so that they have an incarnate person to turn to, not because of God's weaknesses, yeah. but because of our weaknesses. Yeah. In fact, you know, um, later on too, when, when they finally get to, to Mount Horeb and, and, and God descends on the mountain, you know, it's important to understand too that, um, you know, th- there are some skeptics who think, oh, th- this is just an example of how Israel thought Yahweh was like the other pagan deities who, who had, you know, geographic uh, influence uh, at one particular place. No, 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 no. Uh, God doesn't descend to the mountain because he's the God of that particular mountain. Uh, the, the wider context of, of Exodus and Genesis makes it clear that God is the creator of everything. Uh, he's the God of all creation. So when he descends to the mountain, it's not because God needs a place to hang out. He does that to be close to us so that we can have a, a connection with God. And, and, and that's the whole reason he sets up the tabernacle later on as well. Not because God needs a place to live, but we need to have a place where we can have physical contact and be assured that, that the, the omnipresent God is close to us. And so we, we have the, the God of all creation constantly coming down to us in these ways uh, so we can be assured of his presence among us. Well, let's take that the final step too, which of course is through Jesus, but then even today, you know, people say, well, if God is everywhere, then I can encounter God everywhere. And while that's true, God is everywhere. He comes to us in a very special way of his own choosing for our benefit, say in the word and sacrament, which is why we encourage people to be in worship. That's not a limitation of God. It's a limitation of us. Absolutely. You know, and one other thing I I think of, even though the text did not mention it explicitly, I can't help but think of, of a connection. Um, uh, the whole, uh, destroying of, of, of the Egyptians and yet the saving of Israel through water, it, it makes me think of the flood, you know, God uses water to destroy, uh, those who have hardened their hearts against him, but that same water is used to lift up Noah and his family in the ark. And, and Peter even references that in first Peter, you know, that the same water that, that destroyed the world, uh, raised up. Uh, uh, no one is family safely in the ark. And so we hear, we see here again, God using water, uh, both, both to destroy, but, but also to save. And, and so, uh, uh, we get a little picture here, uh, again, of, of, again, I, I think you can't miss it. And that's why Paul brings it up, you know, what God does for us in baptism. Um, you know, uh, scripture even talks about, uh, God drowning our sinful nature, but then raising us up to new life in Christ, dying and rising with Christ. So there, there's a lot of imagery here that is clearly, uh, pointing ahead to its fulfillment in Christ and what, what he has done for us. Yes. The Red Sea, indeed a, you know, destructive force, but a force of deliverance used by God. The same with our baptismal waters going all the way back to the flood. You know, God is a God of order. And we see that the more we pay attention to how God has acted through history. Now in verse 27, as we talk about the Egyptians in the water, I just love the way this is phrased. Uh, Moses writes, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Red Sea, Yahweh through the Egyptians, or the Hebrew maybe is better translated, shook them off. He shook off the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Yeah. So I just have this visual in my head of, you know, here's this mighty power, the God King Pharaoh, all of his chariots, he's got them packed to the brim, three strong. They're coming in and God just sort of shakes them off into the water and they're done. 
it's just uh, just a wild, vivid imagery of of God's work for His people. Absolutely, and and you know, and that's great comfort for us. Um, even though God might not necessarily deliver us from our earthly enemies in this life, you know, we think of Christians who have been persecuted in various ways throughout history and even today around the world. Um, but finally, in light of eternity, in light of Christ's second coming, uh, God will indeed rescue us from our enemies. Um, uh, uh, destroying evil, uh, while, uh, redeeming his people. And, and, and so, you know, th- this becomes an example to us again of, of what appears to be a hopeless situation. Uh, God brings victory out of it. And, and so, uh, as we face death itself, uh, in, in our life, um, we know that, that God has conquered that and, and, and he knows how to deliver us, uh, from, from evil and even from death itself. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. It wasn't too long ago that Moses was trying to get out of being the spokesperson for God. He was worried that as a man of uncircumcised lips that he wouldn't be able to convince Pharaoh or convince even God's own people to follow after him. And God corrected him by saying, it's not going to be you. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. He says it seven times. I think it's in chapter six. I will rescue them. And here we have the Lord, Yahweh, saved Israel that day. So we see all the plagues. We see them released, but it's just not yet done because so long as there's even a hint of the Egyptians still still hanging out there, that Pharaoh in Egypt, they always are going to be worried as they travel through the as they travel through the desert that that yeah they can come after us anytime and yet the lord wipes them off so that people have this security um i don't want to b- go back too far but i i do have to i think we i forgot to really emphasize something and that is way back in verses 11 um you know here we have at the very end god finally saves them but even before they're rescued, they say to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Uh, did they say that? <laughs> I mean, they. I guess they kind of implied it a couple of times when they didn't want to listen to him. But they probably weren't saying, leave us in Egypt to serve the Egyptians while they were taking the gold and silver and clothing and food from the Egyptians on their way out of the country, right? Right. I mean, as long as, as, as it was obvious that God was delivering them in some tangible way, uh, they're willing to believe. Uh, but the moment things start going rough, it's like, whoa, you know, um, uh, it would be a whole lot better just to serve the Egyptians than, and then, then, then to, you know, uh, die in the desert. And again, this, I I can't help but think of how this applies to maybe a misunderstanding of what it means to trust in God, even our own day. Um, we, we think today of the prosperity gospel or, or the idea that God wants to give you your best lives now, you know, it's very easy to believe in God when everything is going, uh, in a positive direction. But when, when, when God calls us to take up our cross, when we might have to suffer for the faith, um, that's when we're tempted to say, Hey, I didn't sign up for this. You know, uh, 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 I, I, why should I follow Jesus? It means I'm going to have to sacrifice or suffer 
you know, uh, wouldn't I be better off just, just, you know, going with the way of the world uh, rather than being persecuted for Jesus? And, and so we're, we're learning from this, you know, God is, is not only teaching his people that, you know, I, I will deliver you in my time and my way, but also I, I, I can't help but think that God is teaching them that to finally get to the point where they would say, hey, even if God lets us suffer, uh, we'd rather follow our God than uh, go back to that slavery in Egypt. Not just the physical slavery, but you, you think of all the false gods, the false religion of Egypt. God delivered them from that too. And I, 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 I can't help but think that God is hoping that they will finally get to the point where they're willing to say, boy, e even if we do have to die following Yahweh, that would be better than being slaves in Egypt. But they're not there yet. Well, and what's, I know this isn't in our text for today, but what's the next thing they do, right? When they, it says they believed in the Lord and Yahweh and in his servant Moses, the, it says Moses and the people sang, right? And that's what we'll cover tomorrow. But they sang this song to the Lord, uh, sort of fascinating, you know, thinking about them standing on the seashore and you still have the bodies of the Egyptians probably washing up to the side of the river and they're, they're just singing and rejoicing, uh, they're rejoicing in that temporal, in that it reminds me of Jesus when he's feeding the 5,000 or the 4,000. People are perfectly happy to be there with Jesus so long as he's giving them food or healing right. them of their diseases. But once the, the, the times get tough, suddenly, you know, well, you know, what have you done for me lately? And so we see these people, they rejoice. It's just a, a whole revival right there on the, on the coast. But we do know the story, you know, spoiler alert. There are more struggles ahead, and they won't always be as faithful as they are right now. Yep. And if there's anything I think we can learn from this, is that not only are we guilty of often, you know, complaining to God when He's uh, not doing things the way we think He ought to be doing them, but but one thing we learn from this is that even though God does care about our physical needs, and the, even though He does often provide uh, us physical deliverance in this life. Uh, at, at, since you brought up the feeding of the 5,000, you know, when, when, when they run after Jesus to, to get more bread, he's very clear to them, hey, I'm not here to just give you bread for your stomachs. You know, I, I'm here to give you something far more important than that, and, and that is ultimately the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life in the face of death itself, precisely through faith in me and my sacrifice for you. And, and so, you know, uh, God is... It, slowly but surely trying to teach us people here, yes, I will give you your daily bread, uh, and it's okay to pray for that, but you also need to learn to pray, uh, forgive us our sins. In other, in other words, there, there's something more that you need from me than just physical provision. And, and, and uh, of course, uh, God will use Moses to teach his people that uh, as, as Exodus goes forward. Well, that brings to my mind Jesus with the woman at the well, right? If you knew who it was you were asking, you'd ask for, uh, you know, this water, this of everlasting life. And, and she, she wants this water that doesn't run out, but doesn't understand that this is a spiritual thing, not just something to, to satisfy her temporal needs. Yes, absolutely. And, and um, you know, and I think of how uh, in, in our own lives, uh, you know, uh, God more times than not, uh, gives us food and clothing and shelter and, and many days of health. So he, he does graciously and abundantly provide for our physical needs. But when he does allow us to do without, when he does allow us to suffer, especially 
for, for Christ, um, uh, you know, in a way that, that we can't really comprehend. Uh, in both the Old and New Testament, it's clear that God uses our suffering to actually uh, help us to mature and, and to strengthen our faith in God all the more. But, but the, the fact is, Satan also uses our suffering to get us to do the opposite, um, to get us to, to question God or doubt him or turn away from him altogether. So, uh, so the importance of, of looking to Christ always when we're suffering, uh, rather than, uh, to our circumstances, because if we look at our circumstances, we're, we're always going to come up with reasons to doubt God. But if we look at our eternal hope in Christ, then, it, then it, that helps us remember, wait a minute, God even works through our circumstances to remind us of, of the eternal hope, the eternal promised land that we have in him. Well, brother, we're here at the end of our show, but today is the first Monday in Advent. So in the next few minutes, I invite you to share with the listeners perhaps a, a, a Advent spin on all of this. You know, we wait for Christ's coming. What does that mean about, you know, us and, and how we can prepare our hearts and minds for this Advent season? Well, obviously, Advent, you know, the, the Latin means to enter or to come into. And so Advent is a time for us to remember how God has entered this world for the purpose of saving us. Uh, he, he did that in the past. We've read about that today. He does that in the present. Uh, so, you know, uh, just as God was with his people through the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, um, uh, he, he, he has an Advent in our lives today through baptism through the preaching of the word by giving us his body and blood in Holy Communion. Uh, uh, God is entering our lives today through those precious means. But then uh, Advent also reminds us that there is an eternal promised land ahead. As we go through the wilderness that is life in this fallen world, um, God is leading us to our eternal dwelling place. And we, we look forward to that finally being fulfilled at the future Advent when Christ will return visibly and and bring all things to completion. And so Advent uh, uh, helps us to meditate on all of that all at the same time. Well, I hope you have a blessed Advent. Uh, pastor Eckstein, I'd like to thank you. Folks, this was the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Pastor, again, thank you for being on the show. My privilege. Thank you. And folks, thank you for joining us today, too. Be here at the same time tomorrow as we hear the song of Moses and the Hebrew people as they sing, dance, and joyfully celebrate God's deliverance from the Egyptian army. It's quite a spectacle. But after seeing such a miraculous display, will they trust God's word from now on? Well, we kind of know the answer, but we'll find out for sure tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.